Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and beaches vacation.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. I do think that searching for principle on Capitol Hill in the judicial confirmation debates is awfully hard. It's like Diogenes searching for an honest man. I shouldn't have to come to the school and pick up my son, you know, every other day because he's he's melting down or my child should not be escaping unnoticed from from school. Hi, and welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover the courts for Slate. 293. That, in the end, was the grand total of days that Judge Merrick Garland waited before his nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court officially expired this week with the swearing-in of the new Congress. And so it went that Mitch McConnell's steadfast refusal to hold a hearing for Garland really paid off. Some Republican senators declined to even give the nominee a courtesy meeting. And so, as Judge Garland returns to his seat on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, speculation turns to whether or not Senate Democrats are going to consider turnabout to be fair play. In an appearance on MSNBC this week, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer suggested to Rachel Maddow that they very well might. We are not going to make it easy for them to pick a Supreme Court justice. Is is there an argument to be made, though, if it is a fair statement that that was basically a, a stolen seat, so it yes. isn't, it isn't yes. theirs to fill, then... In that case, no nominee would be legitimate because that seat should have been filled by I President Obama. It's hard for me to imagine a nominee that Donald Trump would choose that would get Republican support that we could support. So you're right. And so you would do your best to hold the seat open? Absolutely. If it's hard for Schumer to imagine a nominee that Democrats could support, that's probably because he's well aware of the contenders. The president-elect's team has reportedly narrowed the shortlist to eight names. On today's episode, we're going to parse that Trump shortlist and consider the ways that the people on it could alter the balance of the Supreme Court. We're also going to preview a big case that the justices will take up next week having to do with public education and special needs students. But first, we turn to William Jay. He's co-chair of Goodwin Proctor's appellate litigation practice and head of the litigation department in that firm's D.C. office. He did a five-year stint as assistant to the Solicitor General, and he's argued, I think, 14 cases at the high court. He's also a former clerk to the justice whose seat is now empty, that, of course, being Justice Antonin Scalia. So welcome to Amicus Willie Jay. Thank you so much for having me. Was I right about 14? It's 14, yes. 
Good. And counting. So, Willie, I want to <laughs> start by asking you um, just to tell us a little bit about clerking for Justice Scalia. Do you have one emblematic story that captures what what he was like or what you think about when you think about him? Uh, I think of him laughing. Uh, uh, almost all my favorite memories of him uh, are of him laughing, often coming into the clerk's office uh, holding a piece of paper, uh, reading out loud something that he had just written that he was tickled <laughs> by or thrilled with. Say, yeah, listen to this. I've, this is really good. <laughs> listen to this. And then he would read it dramatically. I think I, one of my favorite memories uh, was of an opinion that we worked on um, together. And I had helped him with his custom before circulating an opinion to his fellow justices was to check every citation over himself. So he would sit there with a cart full of books, uh, reading every opinion that he cited, every statute that he cited, uh, and you know, making marginal notes on the draft opinion. Uh, and this was an opinion that had to do with uh, government support for various different agricultural products. So it was the occasion for him to flip through Title VI of the United States Code, looking at all the different provisions that were cited in it and going, Haas avocados, ha, can you believe this? <laughs> apricots, we have a program for apricots. Eggplant, <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> Laughing the whole way. Did you feel like it behooved you to laugh along as his clerk or were you entitled to sometimes just sit stony-faced while he laughed? I never had to think about it because he was always funny. <laughs> okay, good answer. Um, so I want to start, Willie, by asking you this. You, you know, the seat, uh, his seat has been open since February. You've argued at the court since then. W yes. What's it like with eight justices? Is it palpably different? And I, I mean that in two ways. One, sort of, I know what it's like from sitting and watching his absence. It's a huge absence that's missing. But also, do you feel that there's a difference in terms of how you prepare a case knowing there's only eight justices there? Uh I do think so, uh, because although uh, he would even advise lawyers, uh, hey, I'm only one vote. So even though you know, for example, that I won't accept your legislative history argument and I will make fun of you in the courtroom, uh, my <laughs> colleagues might actually fall for it. So you absolutely should include all of that stuff in your brief. I think that the absence of Justice Scalia or someone willing to uh, poke at arguments like that, though, does uh, embolden the advocate in a way that um, that wasn't true when you knew that Justice Scalia would be sitting there waiting for you the second you went to the committee report or the floor debate. Huh. Interesting. And And do you feel that every single case now that goes up to the court, every advocate is thinking... How do I keep this from being 4-4? Is that the animating principle here? How do I get through this thing in a way that will keep it from being a tie? Uh, well, certainly if you're the petitioner, you don't want it to end in a tie. Uh, if you're, if mm -hmm. you're the respondent, you might well be perfectly you might be happy with a tie. Happy. Yeah. Because not only do you live to fight another day, uh, but you, you know sometimes it's easier if there's no need to get everyone to agree on a common rationale. You know, if everyone knows that a four to four affirmance isn't going to set a precedent, maybe that'll be very simple. Uh, that said, I do think that the court seems to be trying very hard not to 
hand down very many four to four affirmances. And so I think that even if it doesn't seem like an ideologically charged case that might break down along the familiar left-right lines, I do think that advocates are thinking about what is an aspect of my theory or what might be a fallback theory that could command broader agreement and could I live with it? Or am I bound and determined to stick with my more sharp-edged theory that might be appealing to fewer justices and might have less chance of getting to five votes? So let me ask this, Willie, and feel free to argue away. I know you will. Uh, Mitch McConnell, having obstructed Merrick Garland for almost 300 days, uh, announced this past week that Americans, quote, would not tolerate obstruction if Democrats tried it. Now, this feels a little like rank hypocrisy to me, but is there some principle animating this obstruction for me, but not for thee, that that makes some highfalutin sense beyond just the sort of junkyard scrapping that now passes for how we confirm justices? Well, I do think that searching for principle on Capitol Hill in the judicial confirmation debates is awfully <laughs> hard. <laughs> yeah, it's Thank like you. Diogenes searching for an honest man, uh, precisely because people on both sides of the aisle say things when one person is president that is exactly the opposite of what they were saying when someone else is president. Uh, you know, without identifying you know particular people or pointing particular fingers, uh, I don't think that. Everyone involved in these debates is always uh, sticking hard to principle. You know, that said, Senator McConnell had said, uh, the next president will fill this seat. Okay, well, now we have a next president. It happens to be the president uh, that McConnell supported. So I guess the question is, if Hillary Clinton were filling the seat, do you think Senator McConnell would be falling in line saying, okay, yeah, we said she got to fill the seat. So let's move along. Uh, let's talk about the Trump nominees, because uh, you, in a piece, I think, in The New York Times, characterized the Trump shortlist, which was in a pretty long list, I think, of 21 potential justices to fill Justice Scalia's seat. Uh, you characterized it as meeting two interesting goals, and I want you to talk about it. I think you said, you know, Trump managed to not tap a bunch of establishment conservatives and at the same time to completely mollify the conservative establishment with that list. Is that a fair characterization of what you think that shortlist was trying to do? Well, I don't have any inside information. All I can do is look at the list and see what seems to unite the names on it. Uh, so for, especially when you looked at the first list, you know, the complete, uh, the almost complete absence of graduates from, you know, elite Ivy League law schools uh, was really striking. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, you couldn't you couldn't help but notice that and and think that considering who was included and then who wasn't included, you know, no Paul Clement, no Brett Kavanaugh, uh, perhaps that has something to do with where they went to law school and where they uh, lead their professional lives in Washington, D.C. It was a list that steered away from the coasts and away from the Ivy League. And, you know, on the first list, the only Ivy League graduate was Judge Colleton, who sits smack dab in the middle of Trump supporting Iowa. 
And some of the folks on the, I think there's a shorter version of the list now. I think uh, Politico's reporting it's down to about eight people. And I wonder if you would just run through them, tell us which court they emanate from, and then tell us if you would, if any of them would have also been on the short list of a Jeb Bush or a Ted Cruz had they won the presidency. Sure. Uh, so the list, as I understand it, has been reported uh, in no particular order, uh, consists of Judge Steve Colleton from the Eighth Circuit, who sits in Des Moines, Iowa. Judge Ray Grunder, also from the Eighth Circuit, uh, who sits in St. Louis. Uh, Judge Diane Sykes from the Seventh Circuit, who sits in Milwaukee. Uh, Judge William Pryor from the Eleventh Circuit, who sits in Birmingham, Alabama. Judge Neil Gorsuch from the Tenth Circuit, who sits in Denver. Uh, Justice Joan Larson of the Michigan Supreme Court, uh, Judge Tom Hardiman of the Third Circuit, who sits in Pittsburgh, and Judge Ray Kethledge uh, of the Sixth Circuit, who's in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And you asked if any of them w- uh, might have been on a uh, short list for another Republican president, a, uh, a President Ted Cruz or a, a President Jeb Bush. And I think the answer is clearly yes. Uh, several of them would be on the short list for literally any Republican president. I think what you've seen is uh, President-elect Trump has cast a bit of a wider net looking at state Supreme Courts, uh, looking outside uh, Ivy League law schools for candidates to include on the list, which I think is generally a good thing. Do you have somebody who stands out? I know, again, this is not based on insider information. Somebody who stands out on that list that you're very excited about. Uh, is there someone that you're really, really keen on and whose name has been floating around? There's no one that I'm really, really keen on in the sense that if, by some crazy chance, the president-elect were to call me up and say, who should I pick, You know that I would have a, have a ready answer. I think there are a lot of uh, excellent names on you know on what's been reported to be the the shorter version of the longer list. Uh, I, you know, I, I will say that I think that the inclusion of Joan Larson uh, is interesting and striking for several reasons. Number one, she's a justice on the Supreme Court of Michigan, which uh, we haven't had representation from alumni of the state judiciaries uh, for several years now on on the Supreme Court. And that may or may not be a bad thing because the the jobs are a bit different. Uh, But it is interesting to see, it was interesting to see so many state judges on Trump's longer list. And of those, I think, you know, uh, Joan Larson is a terrific person who is worthy of inclusion on anybody's short list. You should note that she's a Scalia clerk, right? That's and that was the next thing. Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know, if there were any sort of noteworthy thing about about her being considered to fill Justice Scalia's seat, it is that she clerked for Justice Scalia uh, in the in the early nineties, and you know was very close to him. And I know that somewhere he would be smiling. You're listening to this podcast, so you care about history, and what a period we're living through right now specifically when it comes to the situation in Israel and Gaza. Right now, you're hearing a lot of loud voices screaming about genocide, massacre, and occupation. But these words, slogans, and various headlines are not enough to help understand what is happening over there. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History. 
Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from season six each week where they cover many of the topics that are relevant to what's going on in Israel today. From the history of infamous terror groups Hamas and Hezbollah to the story of Nakba to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. Talk a little bit about what qualities, again, I know Trump isn't calling you, but he might be listening to Amicus this weekend um, and tweeting it. Uh, Tell us, Willie, what Scalia qualities you think are really crucial to try to replicate if there's, you know, you, you talked a little bit about uh, the use of legislative history, you know, we, we could talk about originalism and his impact on that. But are there qualities that you think, you know, beyond just that he was an incredibly important uh, thinker in, you know, conservative jurisprudence, specific qualities that you, th- you think Trump should seek to replicate? Or is this not about kind of building a better or newer Scalia, this is about something else. Well, I don't know what judicial philosophy the president-elect wants his justice to embody, but I do know that there are a couple of aspects of Justice Scalia's performance as a justice that I would think that he would want to replicate. And, you know, when you hear what they are, I think maybe you'll agree that a lot of presidents would want their justices to replicate that. And, you know, here are two. One, adherence to principle rather than uh, being swayed by the results in particular cases. And one thing Justice Scalia liked to say about having a particular philosophy uh, was that you could check him. You could verify in particular cases whether he seemed to be adhering to his own neutral principles of legal interpretation or whether it just seemed like he was voting for the party that he wanted to win. And I know there are people who disagree on the outcome of that analysis, but you can't deny that he had a philosophy and that you were able to evaluate his compliance with it from case to case. And I think that that's a good thing in the justice. And the second thing is sheer ability to persuade with the written word. And I don't just mean your colleagues, although that's important as well. Justice Scalia was first and foremost a teacher. He went out into the world. He, he talked to the non-lawyers who are listening to this podcast. You know, uh, he would speak uh, you know, at a variety of different settings, you know, law schools, but not, but also non-law schools. He was on, you know, 60 Minutes in a very, you know, very successful conversation with Leslie Stahl about who he was, where he came from, and what he thought. And he was singularly gifted at explaining clearly, unambiguously, persuasively, and colorfully what a case was about and why he was voting the way he voted. And that's one of the reasons that so many of his opinions are read by law students and are really, you know, embraced by law students, including law students who, as Justice Kagan uh, said recently, you know, law students who would say to her when she was a law professor, Professor Kagan, you know, I don't want this to be right, but it just has to be right. I wonder if part of that big bombastic personality was also certainly in the days and weeks after Justice Scalia died, there was a lot of conversation about how he had this tremendous influence off the court, changed all of our lives, I think, in law school, and maybe less persuasive on the court because of the sharp elbows. Is that 
something that necessarily comes with, you know, I, I think we could all agree that no law student could read him without being changed. But is persuasion, and I'm thinking now of someone like Elena Kagan, who really puts a premium on getting to five, getting that fifth vote, is that a quality that maybe Justice Scalia didn't have in the amounts one might wish for if one wanted to see really, really effective justicing? Or am I selling him short? Well, I think that that argument has been made in kind of two different ways. And let me let me kind of break it apart. Some people said that basically his dissents were so pungent and, mm-hmm. you know, so mean, you know, for for shorthand, that he alienated his colleagues and he made his colleagues less likely to join him in other cases. I don't think that that's right. Uh, you know, Justice Kagan writes <laughs> some pretty pungent stuff, too. But as you as you said, uh, you know, she's someone who's a good coalition builder. I think, though, that the second way in, w- in which you can levy that criticism at Justice Scalia, you know, that he he was not willing to bend principle for the sake of getting to a majority, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, that there are a number of cases in which other conservative justices joined one opinion and he and perhaps Justice Thomas would not join it even though if they had, there'd be a majority for the side he was voting for because he insisted on uh, what he saw as a more principled, perhaps more bright line approach uh, rather than something flabbier that would resolve that case but not settle the relevant area of law. You know, I think that's a criticism you can levy at him, that he was not willing to go along for the sake of getting to five a lot of the time. And in a normative way, Willie, is that a quality one would seek in a new justice? Or if Justice Scalia didn't manage to get a coalition around some of the originalist philosophy that he was trying to put forward, is it important that his replacement be able to get to five no matter what or stand on principle no matter what? It's a good question. Uh, You know, uh, I suspect that the president would like to have both, right? He would like to have a mm-hmm. justice who stands on principle and is so singularly persuasive that she wins everyone to her side without without having to give an inch. Uh, but I recognize that's often not possible. Um, but what I think, you know, Justice Scalia might well say is that his ability to change minds uh, long term might have been diluted if he regularly was bending toward the sort of center of gravity of the court for the sake of uh, forming a majority. So you said she. So I feel that I have to ask you about Diane Sykes uh, of the Seventh Circuit, another shortlister. We talked about Joan Larson. She's, a, in, in my view, certainly in the top three uh, candidates and somebody whose name Trump has actually used. Is she, in your view, uh, a very, very strong contender for this seat? I would think so, but you know, again, they're not asking me, you know. But mm-hmm. you know, she, she not yet, she, not yet, Willie. <laughs> uh, but she has several things in her background that are interesting, and I, what I think uh, are likely to be appealing to the president-elect. One, she is from the Midwest; she's from Wisconsin, and she's had a long track record as a judge, both state and federal. And one one other interesting thing that's that's worth noting is that when she was appointed to the Seventh Circuit, President Bush 
agreed with the then two Democratic senators from Wisconsin to consider the recommendations of the Bipartisan Judicial Selection Commission that the senators and Congressman Sensenbrenner had established out in Wisconsin. And that commission recommended, among others, then State Justice Sykes, and I believe uh, Senator Feingold and Senator Cole both returned their blue slips, did not oppose giving her a hearing, and although I can't remember for sure, they may well have supported her confirmation at the time as well. The last name I want to ask you about is William Pryor off the 11th Circuit. Again, somebody that uh, President-elect Trump has said by name uh, is someone he's interested in. But I want to ask you a sideways version of the question, and that is Pryor probably most famously is very, very much an anti-Roe candidate. He famously said it was the uh, worst abomination in constitutional law. This is, I think, the one thing everybody knows about prior. And I want to ask you whether I I think Trump has very clearly said that Roe is his litmus test, that the one thing he says beyond a shadow of a doubt is, you know, we don't need to relitigate gay marriage, but boy, are we going to strike down Roe and send it back to the states. Is this next seat simply going to be a massive mud fight about Roe? Well, the answer to that is probably, you know, just because, uh, as you say, the president-elect has suggested that all of his judges, I think think the the quote is, the judges will be pro-life. And so whether they have a track record like Judge Pryor, or whether they don't. I suspect that the Democrats in the Senate will attribute to each and every you know, possible nominee, you know, to anyone that President Trump might send up, the view that the president himself has espoused uh, and said, aha, you must be a vote to overrule Roe, whether you will say so or not. Well, isn't that the problem with setting out a litmus test, that that presumption is probably not unreasonable, given that Trump has pledged that that's what he values, right? I mean, in a sense, he set every judge on that list up by doing that. Yes, he has said that. Uh, I wonder how he knows, uh, you know, in in particular, you know, he, he set this list out, uh, but several of the people on the list, you know, who have been asked to recuse from particular cases, for example, in their current jobs, uh, based on their inclusion on the list, several of them have, have publicly stated that they've had absolutely no contact with him at all. Uh, so he may have stated publicly that everyone on the list is pro-life, but we have no way of knowing what his basis for saying that is. I think that leads to my last question, which is, at least as far as Politico's reported this week, he actually hasn't met with any of these finalists uh, on the on the list of eight. Uh, and it leads me to wonder, and I, I'm remembering having Oren Kerr on the show right after the election talking about the same issue, and his sense was, why would he pick from this list at all? I mean, why don't we assume he's going to, you know, Trump's going to Trump, and he's just going to pick someone, some Harriet Meyer-style somebody. Uh, is that on the radar in your view? Do you think that this is going to be a pick that is going to be as establishment or small e establishment, given that it doesn't include uh, Paul Clement. But is this going to be a pick that is going to make the conservative legal establishment happy? Or is there some sense that he just doesn't really care about the courts? Well, I don't know. uh, I don't know what he thinks about the courts. Uh, I do think that 
if he went off the list, the first reaction would be, oh my gosh, he's gone off the list. But the second reaction would be, okay, who did he pick? What is that nominee like? But he did say very clearly during the campaign that he was going to pick only from the list. And if he went off of it, then that probably would become the story right away. The story becomes the president breaks his promise, partly because whoever you pick, it takes a while to write the story and do the background profile of who this person is and where they came from. And if they're not on the list, uh, you and your colleagues in the fourth estate may not have something you know, already in the can prepared about them. So the risk is that the story becomes, oh my gosh, he went off the list, rather than he has today named a solidly respected conservative judge from the, you know, ex-Court of Appeals. Willie Jay is co-chair of Goodwin Proctor's appellate litigation practice. He's head of the litigation department in that firm's D.C. office. He was assistant to the Solicitor General for five years, has argued 14 cases at the high court. And if Donald Trump calls him this weekend, we hope to hear about it on Twitter. Willie, thank you so very much for joining us this week on Amicus. Thanks for having me. And we're going to hear now from another great sponsor on our show, SAP. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. The government's responsibility to educate special needs students is not a topic that often comes up before the U.S. Supreme Court. But next week, the justices will take up that very issue in a case that's called Andrew F. v. Douglas County School District. Education advocates see this as an important opportunity for the high court to really clarify what level of educational benefits the public schools are required to provide to children with disabilities under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act or the IDEA. A ruling in this case would have vast implications for students with disabilities across the country in terms of the standard that school districts have to meet when they teach students with special needs. At bottom, the issue in this case is whether schools must provide these students an education basically equal to other students. Joining us now from his office in Denver, Colorado, is Jack Robinson, a lawyer for Andrew F., the student at the center of this case. Welcome to Amicus. Jack. Thank you for having me. So this case, I want to set the table for our listeners, and you've been involved in this case almost from the beginning, I think. This case involves a student who's known uh, in the court papers only as Andrew F. His name is Drew. It dates back to 2010. And his parents at Highland Ranch, Colorado, pull him out of the public elementary school. Uh, Can you Am I is that right? And can you explain why they pulled him out of his public school? Uh, that is right. So they gave the school district notice and and pulled them out, telling them that they were, you know, dissatisfied with Drew's educational 
you know, progress and, and experience. And really, it's, you know, this, it didn't happen overnight. It really, and sort of as the, the briefs explain, this, you know, was a, a fairly long period of time over, certainly over three years of, you know, the parents experiencing behavioral decline, socialization decline, communication decline, um, you know, over these years. And really, the mom being very involved in the school and, you know, trying to do everything she could to to make things work. And, you know, it got to such a period of time that, you know, the school district, their sort of go-to response when Drew was having a, a difficult time or having a meltdown or was not compliant, um, they would just call the parents and, and have mom come and pick them up. And this began happening on a more and more frequent basis. And, you know, there are a couple incidences in, say, the spring of 2010, you know, where uh, Drew got out of the, the class unnoticed and was found, you know, in the in the school building. And on another occasion, he actually got out of the building unnoticed and was brought back to the school by a neighbor. And, you know, Drew is nonverbal, uh, has, you know, obviously communication, socialization issues. And, you know, Drew came out of the the school unnoticed, uh, you know, unnerved uh, the parents and was kind of the, the final straw that, look, if you cannot keep my child safe, then um, I cannot bring him back to this to the school. And that was sort of the, the impetus to take him out and, and uh, try to get him the, the services and supports that he needed such that he could learn. So, so let's go back and just clarify. Drew, ha- he's autistic. He has ADHD, um, but he was doing okay in the public school system until some point or he was declining? I mean, I'm trying to understand if he was getting worse or the services were getting worse or is there a sense of what was going wrong here? Well, I think up until his second grade year, I think that there was some acknowledgement that things were were going okay. Um, You know, they closed a program down in second grade and moved him over to this other school um, in the third grade different teachers, different programs. And, you know, I think beginning in his third grade year, he just started not progressing academically and regressing functionally, behaviorally, you know, his communication. Parents were uh, particularly concerned about, you know, the behavior, say, dysregulation and his lack of ability to socialize or, you know, make eye contact with other kids and, and basically exhibiting um, on a more pronounced basis, you know, typical symptoms, I guess, of, of children with uh, significant autism. And the school's approach was basically just to deal with the increasing behaviors, which, you know, it's it's basically admitted in the papers that were filed in this case and in the, the court's decisions on this case that the, the school district really had no clue as to how to address his behaviors or manage his behaviors as they got worse um, and get him to a point where, you know, he could sit and attend and actually learn. And so I think it was a combination of a number of things. A big part of it was the, the school district's sort of failure to bring the resources to bear to figure out how to educate a child like Drew. 
So his parents pull him and they move him to a private school where he starts to flourish, right? They see marked changes and then they ask the district to reimburse them for the tuition at this new school, right? Right. And almost, you know, on that almost, you know, immediate improvement. I mean, a lot of kids with autism, it's fairly typical that they have very difficult time transitioning to new things, certainly to new environments, to new people, Um, you know, even transitioning from one task to another task. But they, you know, placed him in this private school that specializes in the education of children with autism. And, you know, within a few months, they notice a a very significant decrease in behaviors and increase in attention and, you know, uh, flourishing, as you were saying. And the parents did not, say, bring this, what's called a due process complaint, basically this procedure um, that's brought under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act to request the school district, in essence, to pay for his education. Um, They didn't bring that complaint for several months because they wanted to ensure that that it was the school district's failure to provide him an education as opposed to Drew's inability to learn. So you mentioned the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Can you tell listeners what that act was intended to do? I know it's been amended, but can you try to give us a sense of why? uh, Because I think that the fight in this case is what standard of learning under the act uh, are schools responsible to meet. So can you give us a little bit of a sense of what the act purports to do? Sure. So the act was initially passed by Congress in 1975 called the Education for All Handicapped Children's Act. Um, And this legislation was a reaction to a number of lawsuits that were challenging state laws that either barred children with disabilities from, you know, access to school or um, allowed schools just to basically institutionalize children with disabilities, um, or if they were allowed even in the school building, um, just to, to have them, in essence, languish in a room by themselves. And so there are a number of lawsuits that that challenged those state laws, and the Congress, uh, in reaction to that, decided that, um, you know, the nation needed legislation to ensure that, you know, children with disabilities, no matter the severity, uh, were... Uh, provided a free, appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment. And so that's the statute has been on the books since 1975, but it's been substantially um, amended, reauthorized. Um, in 1982, the Supreme Court, in this case called Hudson Valley School District versus Rally, grappled with the issue of what does a free, appropriate public education mean? because appropriate and education, those two terms, uh, are not specifically defined uh, in the statute. And so Raleigh came up with, you know, um, recognized that the IDEA had a procedural requirement um, 
and a substantive educational benefit requirement. And this is in 1982. And so over the ensuing years, the circuit courts um, throughout the country have come up with, you know, wildly different interpretations of what uh, Rowley construed the substantive standard to be. So in, say, the Tenth Circuit, the substantive standard for a free, appropriate public education is uh, merely more than de minimis. Uh, In other circuits, it is a meaningful educational benefit standard, which is recognized as being a, a higher, more robust standard for delivering an education or providing an education. And so our case is, is basically challenging the Tenth Circuit's interpretation of rally is requiring, you know, an education that's for a child with a disability that's little more than, than nothing. So, so just to be really clear, the goalposts are, to the extent that we're fighting about where we locate ourselves, on the one hand, we have a bunch of circuit courts who have agreed uh, with the Tenth Circuit that, you know, a little bit more than nothing is adequate. And then what you're asking for is more than that. What does it sound like? What's the other choice here? So the standard that we are asking the Supreme Court to adopt is that the FAPE requirement uh, obligates schools to provide children with disabilities uh, with substantially equal opportunities to achieve academic success, attain self-sufficiency, and contribute to society, which is, in essence, what the the IDEA sets forth. And you mentioned the rally case. The court hasn't looked at this since 1982. Even in that intervening time, it seems to me that we probably have vastly different notions about what special needs kids both require to do well in school and also uh, vastly different notions of what school is doing, right? I mean, things have changed even since the last time the court took a whack at this question. Right. And, And importantly, you know, we include this in our briefs, you know, this notion of what education is. And the IDEA now is very clear that education is not just academics. It's not just, you know, um, reading, writing, and arithmetic, but it's functioning, it's behavior, it's communication, it's socialization, it's becoming a, it's becoming a a citizen. Um, And it is, you know, again, the, the purpose of the IDEA is to achieve academic success, to obtain self-sufficiency, to be able to contribute to society, to be employed and go on to to further education, um, which is not attainable under this merely more than de minimis uh, standard. And, you know, I think strikingly uh, in a lot of the briefs on the school district side, uh, none of them, you know, uh, will admit that merely more than de minimis is is right, or merely more than de minimis is what they strive for, and yet they cling to this this standard because they're allowed this, or can be allowed, this incredibly low, low bar upon which to be assessed. I'm imagining, Jack, that listeners are hearing you speak and thinking, well, but he's asking for the moon. You know, what you're asking for is a sea change that is going to impact, you know, millions and millions of children and families and schools and that it's uh, it's just unattainable. Of course, we want all kids to get what 
Drew eventually gets in a private school for, you know, that specializes in autistic children. But what you're asking for is just impossibly dreamily high. So I want you to maybe talk for one minute about what the public schools might have done that would have been enough. In other words, were his folks asking for the moon or what might they have done that would have met the standard that you're seeking? Right. And I, I think that that's a very interesting question, you know, and, and again, I'm not talking across the board, but say in this case, the school district says, here's what we're doing and this is enough and we don't think anything's wrong and we're not going to change anything. And the parents are pleading with the school district that things aren't going well. I shouldn't have to come to the school and pick up my son, you know, every other day because he's he's melting down or my child should not be escaping unnoticed from from school. Um, and so things have to change. And, you know, over a period of time, over a period of years, things don't change. And you know your child has potential that is not being addressed and the, the barriers to your child's uh, sort of access to education are not being removed, then, you know, again, the IDEA does allow a parent to say, look, you know, done all we can do. Uh, we're going to have to take matters into our own hands. And if that works out, you know, we're going to ask you to to pay for that because my child is entitled to a free, appropriate public education and he's not getting it. So, in a long way of saying, um, this case was not a matter of if the school district would have you know, provided one more hour of this service or if it would have changed this goal to include this. It really was, you know, the school district's failure to adequately assess this child, understand his sort of unique learning needs, and to sort of implement the, you know, the services and supports that would, you know, allow him to learn. I want to ask you one last question, Jack, and that is because you've owned this case for such a long time, how's Drew doing at Firefly now? What you, you described a pretty bleak picture at the start of this interview about what what his life was like at school. Can you give us a, a sense of where he's at now in his education? Yeah, I mean, he's thriving. He's doing remarkably well. He's going to be a contributing member of society. I mean, just looking at, as you said, you know, the, the, the bleak picture that was ahead of him before is no longer the case. And it has, you know, been a, a very good investment uh, on the on the parents' part as far as, you know, allowing Drew to... Um, try to reach his, his potential and being a, you know, functioning member of society and living independently. Jack Robinson's case, Andrew F. V. Douglas County School District, will be argued next week at the U.S. Supreme Court. Jack, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Thank you. Thank you for taking an interest. And that is it for today's episode of Amicus. We are, as ever, eager to hear your thoughts and feedback. Our email is amicus at slate.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash amicus podcast. And if you are thinking of saying something nice about Amicus anyway, please do us the favor of expressing that sentiment in a review on our page at the iTunes store. 
it is a great way to help other people find out about our show. Remember, if you have missed any of our past shows, you can always find all of them on our show page, slate.com slash amicus. If you're a Slate Plus member, you will also find the transcripts there. If you're not, well, you should be. And you can always sign up for a free two-week trial at slate.com slash amicus plus. Thank you, as ever, to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, the home base of our show. Our producer is Tony Field, Steve Lichtai is our executive producer, and Annie Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Amicus is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. We'll be back with you in two weeks with another edition of Amicus. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.